Hey, Anthem Church, Bert Alcorn here, one of the pastors at Anthem Ventura. So delighted that you are with us today. So glad to be opening up the text with you today. Hey, whether you're watching this in a backyard, in a Zoom room, or somewhere online, I am genuinely glad that you're with us today and uh, uh, genuinely believe that God has you here for a reason, to engage in some of the ideas and thoughts and scriptures that we are engaging with today. So, so thankful you are with us today. Anthem Ventura is one church made up of many communities practicing the way of Jesus together in our city or, you know, online. Uh, We are many communities. We are convinced that growth happens best in these smaller relational contexts. And so we're devoted to meeting in Zoom rooms or in homes or in backyards or whatever as our primary means of gathering each week. And we are one church because we genuinely believe we are better together and there are beautiful things that happen when we are recognizing that we are all on this journey together as a church community. And if you've been tracking with Anthem for any length of time, you're familiar with some of our rhythms, but if you are new or newish to our community, our gathering rhythm is that we are primarily gathering in in backyards and homes online. And once a month, we are coming together for a big Sunday. And so that's what we did last week. If you're watching this, you know, the week it's coming out. And uh, the rest of these weeks here in the month, we're going to be meeting together in these smaller communities. And hopefully, Not just, you know, watching a thing, singing some songs and going home, but actually engaging and dialoguing around the scriptures, responding in worship together, sharing a bit of life and prayer and encouragement together. So I'm so delighted that you're here with us today. We are back in 1 Peter, which I have just... Felt like it's been the gift that's kept on giving. It's been so beautiful to be so rooted in Peter's theology of who God is, what he's done, and and what that does for us and how we live in light of that. And it's been incredible to see how Peter, speaking to exiles who are dispersed all around the area because of suffering and persecution, has so much prophetically to say about the time and the place that we find ourselves in. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app on your phone, go ahead and open up to the book of First Peter chapter 3, uh, and that's where we're going to be camping out today. Now, as you're turning there, I, I don't want to assume anything, so I want to make sure to give us a little bit of context as we head back into the text. We've been out, we were in here last week, but we've been out of First Peter for about a month or two uh, with Advent and our vision series. And really one of the main contexts that Peter is writing into is is emerging suffering and persecution that's starting to take shape in the Roman Empire. Right, Claudius has expelled the Jews and Christians from Rome itself, and, and subsequently Nero has begun his initial persecution of Christians, and within a matter of years would be violently persecuting Christians all over the Roman Empire. So Peter's message of endurance through suffering and persevering and, and having your hope trained on Jesus, not the ways, governments, empires, programs of the world, is a prophetic training ground for believers to be able to withstand the discouraging and painful experiences that many of them were already going through, more to come, and Christians who would read this years and years later. The foundational basis for Peter's encouragement is that the hope that we have in Jesus himself. And this is why we've really um, like titled this series Becoming Resilient Disciples, because when our hope is in Jesus himself, we can withstand anything. We can withstand anything. It gives us perseverance and, and resilience 
because our hope is not set on the things of this world. When we remember that Jesus has prepared for us an inheritance that is undefiled, uh, imperishable, unfading, it's kept in heaven for us. When we have that in mind, when we are sent out on mission to accomplish the purposes of Jesus, even in painful times, even in difficult or conflicting times, we know that we can take the true message of the gospel to the world. And that that message is not built on anything we do or say, but built on Jesus himself. And so as we're in 1 Peter chapter 3 today, we're going to be looking at kind of a big section, but it's one primary thought. And what Peter needs for us to know before we get into the nuts and bolts of suffering and how we live here is that the only hope for the world is Jesus himself. And, and honestly, this is something that we have to grapple with today. Because as we think about whatever's hit us in the last year, COVID, elections, political nonsense, and, and everything that has felt really shaking and has felt like the ground beneath our feet is, is moving, the people who have had tremendous success growing and thriving are the people who know that the only hope for the world is Jesus himself. And the people who have felt like uh, the world has been upended under their feet and then they can't get back on their feet are maybe the people who've placed their hope in something else. We see this just with the elections that, that never really seemed to end, right? We just rolled on from election to was there an election, contesting the results of the election, to rioting, to impeachment, and to all of that things where we still feel like we're trapped in this world of 2020 politics. It's because people are looking for hope somewhere else. And where Christians get so off track is when they think that if we just get the right president, if we just get these right Supreme Court justices, if we just get these right policies, then finally the world will be right again. And they miss the reality that the only hope for the world is Jesus himself. Does that mean we like plug our ears, plug our noses, and just kind of say la, la, la to the world around us? Not at all. It means we engage really well, but we engage with a Jesus-first-centric mindset. And this is what Peter needs for us to understand. So today, we're going to be going through a passage that helps us know how the inevitable suffering that we're experiencing in this world is part of our missional living. And we need to remember this truth, that the only hope for the world is Jesus himself. Because that hope is going to translate into how well you suffer here on earth for the sake of the kingdom. And so what we're going to do today, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in chapter 3, verse 17. So go ahead and head there. And Peter says this, you remember this? For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. There are two problems with this verse if we read it on first pass, right? One, the first problem is that why is it God's will that we would suffer at all, right? That's the first one. That's the first one. Wait a second. What's God's will doing in this little passage about suffering? Aren't we just supposed to endure persecution or suffering or things the world throws at us? How is this some part of God's will? That's the first problem. The second problem is the suffering here is out of whack. Why would we suffer for doing good? No, no, no. If you do good, you're supposed to get good. And if you do bad, you're supposed to get bad. So suffering for doing something bad, that's just consequences, right? Any parent knows that. But wait a second, why is Peter saying that somehow it's God's will that you would suffer for doing good? If I do good, aren't I supposed to get good in return? 
And this is an upside-down statement. Let's not move past how radical and honestly quite controversial this is. Because to suffer for doing evil, that's just consequences. That's justice. And we love justice. Or at least we love the idea of justice. But to suffer for doing good? That's injustice. We don't like that. Why would we have to suffer if we're doing the right thing? And here's the reality. Here's what Peter tells us in this text. Peter tells us how and for what we suffer actually matters. So here's the reality. If you're new to following Jesus, Jesus promises suffering. Chances are, if you're new to following Jesus, you don't actually need to hear that. Chances are, if you are raised in the church and you've been following Jesus for a long time, you need the reminder that suffering is a package deal with Jesus. Like, Jesus does not promise ease, comfort, and you just glide through life. He actually promises that life will be harder here because the world will be against you. And what Peter is calling at here is is how you suffer and for what you suffer actually matters. We talked about this before. Suffering for doing evil, that's just justice. That's just consequences. And what good is it to you if you suffer for being evil or if you suffer for being stupid? Too many Christians suffer because they're stupid, not because they're being sanctified, not because they're actually doing well, not because they're doing good. So for what we suffer matters and how we suffer matters because it's a witness to a watching world. Now, when you think of someone who has suffered for doing good, for doing God's will, who do you think of? And the Sunday school answer is Jesus. Well done. Okay, good job. My son's got that right. I don't know if you adults got that right. But when you think of someone who suffered for doing God's will, our minds are immediately taken to Jesus. And that's where Peter goes next. In verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous. Peter lays out Jesus' act of ultimate suffering and how um, he will cover uh, and, and actually accomplish what was God's will through his act of suffering. And he's going to lay out the path for anyone who would follow Jesus too. Jesus is our example. And so if this is how Jesus suffered, if Jesus even did suffer, then this is the pathway for many of us. But that kind of suffering, Peter tells us, is not without meaning. He suffered that he might bring us to God. Right? His, his object, his purpose in suffering was that you and I would be brought near to God. That those, literally, that he preached peace to those who were far off and brought them near. That the reason Jesus suffered was for you and for me. And that shouldn't cause guilt or, or shame. It shouldn't make us go like, oh man, like it makes me hate myself or like don't like things about myself or what. No, 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 it actually should produce like worship and gratitude that Jesus suffered so that you would be brought into God's presence, that he would bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. But Jesus was alive in the spirit. Jesus is the picture perfect that it's not always God's objective to rescue his people from suffering, but to bring about his will. Right? This is a hard concept for us to understand. This is a why do bad things happen to good people kind of moment. Because God's ultimate uh, object, his ultimate purpose, is not necessarily to rescue us from worldly suffering. 
That's not the point. It's not like God likes to light a fire and watch it burn. That's not his posture either. But even in his own son, Jesus, he did not save him from the ultimate act of suffering. He let that act continue. And there are times when the suffering that people who follow Jesus are facing will actually help bring about God's ultimate purpose in the world, experiencing his grace and kindness. The objective of Jesus' death was to usher us in the presence of God. The objective of much of our suffering is that a watching world would look at how we respond and either look to God or not. Ultimately, the grand plan of redemption is that God and his creation would be reconciled back together. Like that there would be a healing relationship with God and everything and everyone he created. And when Peter writes that Jesus' suffering might bring us to God, he's talking about the purpose of suffering. It's not meaningless suffering, but there is purpose to it. And as we even think about our own life, God's will is not necessarily that you would be delivered from worldly suffering. So when we ask, like, why do hard things happen in my life? It's because life is life. And God's ultimate redemptive plan is not that we would not be minutely saved from every worldly hardship or suffering moment, but that his plan would be brought about and come to bear through our lives. Or to use Paul's word to the church in Rome, we know That for those who love God, for those who love God, all things work for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, God works all things, including our suffering. I love that line at the end of the story of, of Joseph and his brothers in Genesis chapter 50. And the commentary there that what what man meant for evil, God used for good. And then Paul picks up on that theme here. God works all things, the good, the bad, the ugly. He works them all together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Not for our definition of good, but for his definition of good. That we might be with him and that our lives would be walking witnesses to his work. Jesus himself is the ultimate treasure. He suffered on our behalf to bring us close to God. We now follow in the footsteps and the example of Jesus. And if we do that, Jesus promises the world will hate us and there will be discomfort, inconvenience, suffering, and maybe persecution in this world. And God will work all of that together for our and the world's ultimate goal according to his purposes. Continuing on here in verse 18, Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, right? So think like post, post-cross here, pre-resurrection. This is the, the zone that Peter is honing in on here. This is going to get a little weird. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waiting in the days of Noah. Like, wait a second, how did we get to Noah? What's, 
What are these spirits that are in prison? What is happening here? It's a little weird here, and it might be a challenge to understand. Honestly, I'm going to give you an overview here. Don't get too caught up in the ins and outs of this passage right now. You can do that on your own time. Check out Jude 5 and 6 if you want a little bit more here. But the big idea is that Jesus, who had died in the flesh, but was made alive in the spirit, went and proclaimed or preached to the spirits that are in the spiritual prison. And these spirits had formally disobeyed in the days of Noah. Why is he bringing up Noah? We'll get there in a second. The idea here is there were spiritual beings like angels or sometimes called fallen angels. And these spirits had formally disobeyed. They had been judged and bound in eternal chains. Peter says prison. And here's what Peter is getting at. Peter is indicating that God is faithful to fulfill his promise of both redemption and judgment. God is the ultimate justice um, pursuer and holder and definer. And he is going about his plan of justice and judgment as well as redemption. But in the same way that there was disobedience in the days of Noah, there was faith. And so we have these contrasts of disobedience and faith. And Peter takes that disobedience in the days of Noah as a transition moment back to the elect exiles and what he's trying to show them. When God's patience, continuing in verse 20, waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism which corresponds to this. By the way, I, can we just like comment on the fact of how Peter assumes we're going to like know what he's talking about right here when he says baptisms, which corresponds to this. And we're like, wait a second, what is going on? All right, hang with me here. Which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What just happened? <laughs> okay, Peter wants his readers to know that there is a correlation between these two stories he brings up. In Noah's day, there was wickedness. And Noah demonstrated his faith in God amidst a context of disobedience and utter human depravity by building the ark. And that ark delivered them via water to the other side of the flood. They came out on the other side of that destructive moment. In Peter's reader's day, there is wickedness and rampant disobedience, and they have demonstrated, they being the elect exiles, those who have been called according to God's purpose, those who are now dispersed all over the Roman Empire, have demonstrated faith through baptism, which is serving as a vessel to deliver them via water once again to the other side of this flood. Like Noah, baptism is a symbol of identification with God and his way, and it points to the vindication of Jesus' followers ultimately and to his uh, glorification and victory and supremacy over any other spirit. Here's Peter's kind of summation of, of suffering so far. The more we understand Christ's suffering... And what it means for us, especially in a context of disobedience, especially in a context when the world does not at all go the way of Jesus, the more it will cause us to reevaluate our own life. The, most, the more it will cause us to reevaluate the actions and the decisions we make. 
the more it will cause us to come into alignment with Jesus' values in a way that we will get questions from a watching world about why. Why do you live that way? As we think about Noah and the flood and the background context of utter depravity, as we think of kind of God taking the ark and using the ark as the symbol of his protection and his vindication for those who would follow him, Peter says baptism functions in the same way. It's the celebration of a life devoted to Christ. In the same way, those are outward-looking moments for a watching world to ask why amidst a context of suffering, distraction, chaos, confusion, disruption, would you live this way? Why would you live this way? Why would you, as we're going to get into, not join into the way of the world, but live the way of Jesus? Why would you do that? I get that the last bit of 1 Peter chapter 3 is a little bit strange. And what Peter is trying to communicate here is that if you follow Jesus, you will suffer. Because there's a context of human sinfulness and depravity all around you. And how and for what you suffer actually matters. Are you suffering for Christ? Or are you suffering because you're stupid? Are you suffering for righteousness or for unrighteousness? Are you suffering for doing God's will? Or are you suffering like the rest of the world because you're chasing after your own desires? All right, we're continuing in. Peter's kind of continuing this thought as he starts chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Okay, Peter's talking here about the refining nature of suffering. He's saying how and for what you suffer actually matters, but even as you engage in suffering, even as you engage in picking up your cross and denying yourself and inconvenience and persecution, that actually does something to you. So he's already laid out the case that we're going to suffer because Christ suffered, and we want to suffer for doing God's will, not for evil or unrighteousness, and that that suffering is not meaningless, but God's actually working good in that suffering, and some of that good is your sanctification. It's definitely for the watching world. It's definitely for those who are going to ask the questions why, but it is also for your growth, your maturation, your sanctification, and your thriving. Peter is talking about the refining fire of suffering in this world. It does something to us. And when we meet God in that moment, we grow. Think of this last year. Think of 2020, COVID, politics, all of it. Did you grow? Genuinely ask yourself that question. Did you come out of this stronger, thriving, more mature? You can't control all those external pressures and circumstances, but you can have some agency over what is happening in your inner life. Did you grow? Did you meet God in the refining fire of 2020 Or did you just plug your ears? Did you hold your breath? Just tried to wait it out? Did you bicker? Did you complain? Did you walk away from him? Or did you meet him in some of the hardest moments any of us have ever experienced collectively over the last year and grow? Because Peter says that it does something to us. Will you grow? 
And since we're being refined and we're growing into the image of Jesus, our example, our lives should look different. Looks where he takes us. He doesn't just leave it with you in the inner life, but he takes this to the watching world. In verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. He's saying that you've, you've graduated from those things. You don't get hung up on those things anymore. He's like, yeah, 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 you've moved on. You've graduated, you've moved on. Those are the things that previously characterized you. Those are the things you did. But now you're in Christ. You're a new creation. So you're not bound to those things anymore. You have freedom. And he goes on to say, with respect to this, they, meaning the Gentiles, a.k.a. the watching world, are surprised when you don't join in with them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Right? This is key. Verse 4 is key. Think of it as a, a bit of a mirror image of chapter 3, verses 15, when Peter says, always have a defense for the hope that you have. In the same way... Are people around you surprised that you don't join in? This is the key. The world around us is watching us. Are they surprised when you don't join in? Self-centered living is the way of this world. My time is my own, my money is my own, my family is my own, my will is my own, my job is my own. All of that, that is the way of the world. What makes you stand out in a way where they're surprised or like chapter 3 says, where they're asking you for a reason? Selfless living. Living in a way that does not just gratify you at every single move following a different value system. But they, meaning the watching world, they will give an account to him who is already the, is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that through, the, that through judged in the flesh, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. At the end of the day, Peter says, us, just like the world around us, has to give an account for our lives. We are all accountable for our lives. We can try and shirk it off on somebody else. You can shirk it off on your pastor, me. You can shirk it off on your president to fix things. You can shirk it off on your spouse or your boss or whatever. But at the end of the day, you are accountable for your life. You're accountable for your own life. The decisions, the actions, what you did with your short time here on earth, what you did with your money and your resources, what you did with your family, what you did with all God has entrusted you with, just like everybody else in the world are accountable for himself. At the end of the day, you are responsible for your choices and your actions. And here's Peter's litmus test. If your choices and actions look like the world around you, you're probably doing something wrong. If your life is indistinguishable from someone who does not follow Jesus, you're doing it wrong. That's his litmus test. If the world around you is surprised or even asks you why, you might be on the right track. 
And this translates into every single part of life. If the way you handle your money looks like the world around you, you might be doing it wrong. I feel like I'm starting to go down a you might be a redneck situation. <laughs> but if you, the way you parent your kids looks like the world around you, you might be doing it wrong. If the way you think about your job, your career path, your trajectory, you might be doing it wrong. But if the world is surprised, and not just surprised that you don't join in with what, whatever they're doing, but if they ask you why, maybe you're on to something. Maybe you're on to something. Because how and for what we endure this life, we endure suffering, we endure inconvenience, not getting our way, actually matters. Because when our eyes are focused on Jesus, our value systems change. Remember the upside-down nature of that very first statement Paul made. The way of Jesus is upside-down. Is your life upside-down? This is a bit of a strange passage. We can all agree, right? It's a bit of a weird passage. Don't let the strangeness let you off the hook for dealing with the hard, simple, and profound truth that Peter is getting at. That Jesus is the suffering servant who accomplished his work and brings us with him in his finished work by faith and is now seating at the right hand of God. And he has power over the angels, authorities, and everything else that's been subjected to him. As followers of the way of Jesus, he's our example, and we can expect suffering in this world. So how and for what we suffer is of supreme importance, not only to our witness to a watching world, and not only to our own inner life, sanctification, and growth, but before God himself, who judges the living and the dead. Jesus is king and his way, his upside-down way, is the way of true life. A life that you and I are invited into. Jesus, thank you so much for my brothers and my sisters in the scattered church of Ventura. Thank you for those that are gathering together in a backyard, treasuring the truths of your scripture. Thank you for those who are gathering on a Zoom room, committed to meeting together, committed to not neglecting to meet together, even though external circumstances make that difficult. Thank you for those who are watching in some online platform somewhere, curious about the truth of Jesus and how what you have to say changes how we live in this world. God, in the variety of contexts, I don't think in this moment that I'm disappointed or bummed. I think I'm supremely optimistic that no matter what happens in this world, your church moves on. That whatever happens in this world, your church moves forward. That your gospel message goes forward. Thank you that because of your gospel, because of your finished work, because of your resurrection, we can actually endure inconvenience, hardship, and suffering in a way that grows our inner life that is a witness to a watching world and demonstrates our faith. Jesus, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for the incomprehensible suffering on your part to bring us to God. 
May we follow you well in this upside-down life. Amen. Love you, Anthem Church. See you next week.